Magandang araw, podmates! Tapos na ang eleksyon, magkakaroon na ng bagong Pangulo. To help us understand the various ways forward, we have with us Richard Haydarian, political analyst, professor, and author. Magandang araw sa'yo, Professor Haydarian. Kamusta, Howie? Please just call me Richard. I feel okay, Richard. call me with titles. Yeah. Yes, Richard, I know you've been following political trends and uh, happenings in the country for years now. Did you think a Marcos victory was inevitable? Uh, did you ever have any doubts? Well, I'm not someone who is much given to the idea of inevitability, whether it's in, ter- in the realm of technology, whether it's the realm of Chinese supposed hegemony. And the same thing applies to also the victory of the third in 2016 and now the emphatic victory of the Marcuses. I always believe that contingency matters, agency matters. If mm-hmm. people do the right thing, we can redirect uh, the uh, even the long-term trend lines, if, mm-hmm. if that's to be. So as Karl Marx said, we don't choose the historical circumstances within which we're born, but we can choose what we can do with those circumstances. So I'm not a person who's, who believes in deterministic kind of analysis. Nevertheless, nevertheless, as early as October in a piece for Monocle magazine, which I followed in November with Nikkei Asia, among others, I said that Marcos has emerged as a clear front runner. In fact, this was even before Sara Duterte made it clear that she's not running for the presidency anymore. And the moment that Sara Duterte decided to slide down and team up with Marcos, I said, wow, that's going to be a very formidable team. So the deck was really stuck against the opposition. So Lenny, the opposition leader, was not only against Bombo Marcos Jr. in these elections, she was against the team-up of Bombo Marcos Jr. and Sara Duterte. And that proved a very formidable tandem as we see in the numbers. Mm. Well, that's why many thought it was inevitable. And uh, there were analysts like yourself who were saying this tandem is, is unstoppable. No? But does this mean that at some point you thought that Lenny Robredo had a good chance of defeating this tandem? Well, actually, there were many ways to um, make sure that the tandem, as formidable as it is, uh, to create some cracks and fa- all, uh, take advantage of the fault lines. I mean, remember, there were all of these discussions of Isa and Rosa and all of that. Mm-hmm. And in fact, people close to Sarah were not very gung-ho against those alternative uh, tandems that were thrown out there. Obviously, uh, Isco Moreno, the supposed centrist candidates in these elections, wanted to get the endorsement of President Duterte, who was not very excited about Marcus Jr. succeeding him for a whole lot of reasons. I think President Duterte really believed that his daughter was essentially coaxed and cajoled, if not bullied, into not running for the presidency. Of course, the story is much more complicated than that. But President Duterte openly said that in one of his interviews with one of the YouTubers. He said, you know, my daughter was going to win. She was leading in all the surveys. How on earth? Why is she not running? I mean, he was angry. He was enraged. And hence, all of those comments spoiled Brad, weak leader, among others. So there's some resentment with President Duterte. And hence, he never gave the endorsement. I think that was the opening. So I think it's Kumarena sense. Some opening there. I think there were some people on the ground in Mindanao where we're not very sure about Marcos. Obviously, if Sarah runs, that's one of their own. They will support her no matter what, even if they don't 100% agree. Of course, Mindanao politics is not monolithic, right? We know there's the Cagayan you know, corridor, there's the Val corridor. There are many dynamics there in Mindanao, so let's mm-hmm. not say it's monolithic. But once one of their own runs on national politics, atento pre, right? We support her. But Marcos is not from Mindanao. And the martial law legacy in Mindanao is one of the worst ever across the country. You see, uh, you know, how I come from the north. I come from Baguio. According to my mom, I was almost born on Marcos Highway. I know that objectively we had preferential treatment 
uh, during the Marcos era. Electrification and infrastructure actually developed significantly during the Marcos era. So in so-called Marcos uh, Solid North, it has some basis because they actually benefited even during the worst years of dictatorship. Now, that doesn't make the dictatorship better, but, but Mindanao was devastated. If you look at the numbers on electrification, basic infrastructure, it actually collapsed across much of Mindanao. I think that memory is still searing in the hearts and minds of a lot of folks in Mindanao. So a Bomba Marcos Jr. presidency, hmm, not many were sure about that. So I felt if Isco played his card better, I felt if Lenny was a little bit, I would say, proactive in terms of taking advantage of these cracks within that supposedly solid unit team, things could have happened. But then again, I understand Lenny was also in a bind because how can you team up with the daughter of a president that you could potentially prosecute later on, right? Mm -hmm. Based on charges of human rights violations, corruption, mm -hmm. among others. It was a very difficult. And that's why politics is really not a party, right? This is a realm of real politics, some very difficult decisions. I also felt, Howie, I know I'm, I'm talking a bit too much and I'm preempting myself, but I want to say this because I just don't buy the whole inevitability argument. My sense, if the volunteerism came out a little bit earlier, if the celebrities came out, let's say, January, December, right? I think the race could have been much closer. The numbers are not the two-way race. It's a one-and-a-half-way race. The yes, race that's right. one. It's just so big. Uh, Richard, balikan ko lang yung sinabi mo tungo kay Pangulong Duterte. He has been quite popular. Up to now, he's, he's quite popular. So, ang daming nakaisip na baka mag magkaroon ng malaking effect yung harsh critique niya of uh, Bongbong Marcos. No, I mean, uh, you mentioned uh, some of the things that uh, President Duterte said about him. No, weak leader. He even uh, talked about... Uh, Bong Bong's uh, alleged drug use, etc. And at that time, considering President Duterte's uh, popularity, no, there's going to be a dent in Marcos's chances, no. And then it comes down to you know, sino mo paniniwalaan mo si Bong Bong o si Pangulong Duterte, no. And uh, at that time, Pang uh, Bong Bong uh, was not really rating that high, diba? In fact, there was a point where Sarah Duterte was rating even higher in the surveys, no. So bakit parang ganon? Parang nagkaroon ng Teflon. Despite uh, there are so many reasons for thinking that Bong Bong would not have an easy time, diba? I mean, uh, uh, you know, he wasn't getting the same kind of celebrity power. He was criticized for not participating, uh, you know, with, in the Jessica Soho uh, interviews and then yung right. debates and then wala siya masyadong uh, plataforma and, uh, you know, all the schools were shunning him and they were uh, uh, endorsing his uh, rival instead no and but despite all that no ang laki ng naging lamang niyan so you've been explaining this electoral outcome to the international media right How, what's the gist of your of your explanation paano nanalo si Marcos ng ganito despite all of these seeming uh, obstacles to this kind of victory yeah, I mean, we can go the macro and then micro. Let me start on the micro and then boom, go to the macro. On the micro level, I mean, I think it would have been different if President Duterte, not in March, April, but back in December, actually endorsed another candidate. I think the situation could have been dramatically different. I could, I think it could have split some people in Davao, in parts of Mindanao. Uh, Mindanao-based politicians, let's say Alvarez, who's not necessarily a fan of Sara Duterte, probably could have teamed up with uh, President Duterte, etc., but that didn't happen. If you look at President Duterte, yes, he criticized Marcos, and then he had some side comments that he didn't name names. Uh, but he didn't go more than that. I think if he went out last year and endorsed someone else, another candidate, then we were for some fist. But that didn't happen. So he, that's the thing with President Duterte. He hedges. So he pushes the envelope, and then he hedges. He pushes the envelope, and then he hedges. That's just the pattern I realized, you know, 
he always displays throughout all these years of his presidency. I don't know about the past. I'm not a Davao politics expert, but that's what I noticed with him. So I think it would have been different if he endorsed, let's say, Isco Moreno. Or who knows, even Lenny was at some point supposedly being discussed, at least by some of the people close uh, to Duterte. Uh, but it didn't happen. So I think that's one thing. The other thing is, I think the, you see, charismatic leadership, if you go back to Max Weber, there's almost something mythical about it. The idea of charisma, especially the kind of charisma that Duterte represents, is like my mana from heaven, right? It's like you are the voice of almost some divine, right, kind of, uh, uh, of message, right? And in, in a way, if you look at Duterte, I think that charisma was kind of passed down to Sarah. That's why Sarah's numbers are even higher than Bombo Marcos. Howie, I attended the meeting, the advance of both camps. So mm -hmm. I was one of those guys who did it. When I attended the meeting, the advance of the uni team, when Sarah comes out, yung palakpakan, applause is even more than for Bombo Marcos. She has been the linchpin. So, so long as Sarah Duterte did stick with Marcos overall, and so long as the father, at least early on in the race, did not openly endorse anyone else, the effect would have been muted. The other thing, uh, how you have to keep in mind is this. If you talk to a lot of voters who supported Marcos, they would say, this is not a vote for Marcos per se. And the Marcos people knew that very well. This is a vote to prevent the liberals, what they call Dilawan, from coming back. And mm -hmm. the idea was that by rallying behind the unity, they had the best chance of making sure we completely transition a new era with no choice for the opposition whatsoever. So a lot of people who voted for BBM, when you ask them, are you okay with Isco? They'll say, yeah, Isco is fine. Are you okay with Lachson? Yes, he's fine. Even Pacquiao, some of them are fine. So, and this is actually born by the data on the second preference and all, and Isco always did well as a second preference. But in the end, they said, let's rally behind Marcos and Sarah because they're our best bet to prevent Dilawan from coming back. So Howie, I know this is not something that is much discussed in mainstream discussion or international media, but a lot of people here were voting just to prevent a return to what they believe is the root cause of our problems. Obviously, Howie, we know that has no basis in facts because to blame Aquinos for what went wrong in 30 years is completely unfair, right? What about 10 years of Arroyo? What about years of Era? What about years of Duterte? What about the fact that even Ramos is not necessarily Dilawan per se? But you see, the Marcos, uh, House of Marcos and House of Duterte, their machinery, their narrative machinery, really convinced a lot of ating mga kababayan na talagang ugat ng problema na ating bansa ay mga so-called liberals. And I think the fact that some of our liberal friends or supposed liberal friends talked down at a lot of people or that was the perception or let's say there was kind of an elitist aloofness, etc. They were able to exploit that. And when I say they, this is, this is the Marcoses, this is the Duterte's. So they presented themselves as fellow victims of these liberal oligarchs. And this is populism 101. And I think the strategy and the narrative of the opposition and other candidates was not so effective in denting this kind of narrative, getting almost hegemonic influence over a large part of voters' uh, minds and hearts. Yep, Richard, let me just interject. I just want to pick up on your point about the narrative uh, of the Marcos camp and right. followers blaming uh, the Aquinos and the, you know, this, uh, right. the, the, and the liberal allies for a lot of the problems. But you just wrote in the Inquirer, no? uh, sabi mo, to dismiss the 2022 election results as simply the upshot of disinformation and irrational voting behavior is both intellectually lazy mm -hmm. and morally questionable. Sabi mo, this was less a vote for the science of the country's two leading political dynasties, but instead a torrent of unmediated rage against decades of dysfunctional democracy. You, you made two points there. Sabi mo nga, parang 
uh, it's this is not simply disinformation pero sinasabi mo nga ang ang, ang pinagbasihan ng maraming botante naniwala sila dun sa narrative na na kasalanan nitong uh, mga dilawan ng mga mga Aquinos and I guess uh, by extension si Lenny Robredo is part of that crowd no but at the same time sinasabi mo it's intellectually lazy and morally questionable no so to what extent are you blaming or or maybe crediting uh, this in this in this information machinery of the of the two dynasties for uh, how people voted uh, i'm sure you're not discounting no uh, that as a factor not at all pero sinasabi no. mo it's intellectually lazy Right. So the framework of analysis is a little bit more complicated, right? So yes, disinformation is a factor, but I don't buy the argument that this is the factor. I think it's, mm. let's say, 20% of the problem. You see, disinformation, how does it work? First of all, it's based on a certain degree of grain of truth. If it's totally nonsense, it doesn't sell, right? And it also works in environments of high disaffection. So disinformation is most effective when it taps into disaffection. So it mobilizes this affection towards a certain enemy of the state or target. So if you look at the authoritarian populist language of both Marcuses and Dutertes, you see their narrative is really exploiting the disaffection of Filipino people and then channeling that towards their rivals as the supposed uh, original sin, the source of all problems. And I, I felt that was not fought back as effectively as it should be. Now, When you speak of disaffection, you talk to average Filipinos, a lot of them, let's call it, sorry, median voters to be more technical about it. A lot of them are democratically ambivalent. So if you look at the Pew Research Center survey, World Value Survey, this is in my book in Duterte, right? On Duterte, which showed 60% of Filipinos were fine with a leader who doesn't have to bother with elections. This is World Value Survey. Pew Survey, only 15% said, by the way, this is not just Duterte, this is past 10 years, no? Consistent in numbers, eh? More and more Filipinos are ambivalent at most about democracy and even open. Majority of us are open to authoritarian leaders who can provide decisive leadership. So the Marcoses and Duterte sense that democratic ambivalence then channeled it against the liberals as the supposed source of all troubles. And what is that dysfunction? I mean, look at it, Howie. Let's be honest. Even in the supposed best years of liberal reformism under the late President Aquino, God bless him. He, done, he has done a lot of good things for the country. But look at how he ended his term. Mama Sapano, the apex summit, horrible traffic, the laglagbala right and left, the breakdowns in MRT. Those were PR blunders more than policy blunders alone, right? And you know how not long ago, I talked to a Brazilian because you know Brazil has a very similar politics to us. They have Bolsonaro wants to run for re-election. And then most likely the person who will challenge it is Lula da Silva. Kind of like our Aquino, right? Kind of the more progressive candidate was there. You know what he told me, uh, how he said, Alam mo kulang sa kay Lula. That's why Lula might win, but still many people will hate him. Is because wala silang mea culpa. They never admitted to any shortcomings. So they come off to average people as if they're snob, self-righteous people. And I said, hmm, that's a very interesting observation. Because if we look at the Philippines, how my sense is, The liberal elite in this country didn't have as much mea culpa moment. I think if we had some mea culpa saying we had the best intentions, we did our best. Yes, we had some failures, but we can move forward and do better. If that message was clear, I think it would have been much more difficult for the Marcoses and Dutertes to point the okay. liberal as deracinated elite who don't care about uh, average people. And R- Richard, I'll, I'll just I'll just butt in. No, I I get what you're saying about uh, you know how Aquino made made these b- blunders and could have uh, discredited liberal ideas, etc. No, but 
I mean, it's not like the autocracy, the illiberal, uh, you know, regime under uh, President Duterte did, did such a great job. Uh, you know, it's not exactly, you know, not he didn't exactly, he didn't exactly, uh, you know, build up the potential for another uh, autocratic regime. I mean, you, you yourself, you've you've uh, uh, cr- criticized his handling of the pandemic, the ec- the economic uh, slowdown during the pandemic, the lockdown. Uh, etc. So, and that's much more recent than than uh, uh, Pinoy's uh, Pinoy Aquino's uh, regime, no? Uh, which which is uh, which he's actually dead, no? And then none of the Aquinos are actually uh, running for office. So, so parang uh, in terms of uh, recency bias, no? So shouldn't uh, uh, people be basing their uh, voting decisions and political opinions more uh, on what's happened recently under the? Uh, the, the government of uh, President Duterte then, you know, kind of uh, harking back to the mistakes of uh, Pinoy, mm. uh, which was uh, six years ago. Right. Very good question. I love it. Uh, first of all, there's an, another Aquino actually was running the campaign of the opposition. Bam Aquino, Benigno Aquino IV. So mm-hmm. let's not forget that that was an ideological father for the for the Marcos Duterte regime. Like, look at it. Len is being run again by another Aquino. So I think that didn't help the opposition if Assuming this narrative argument, this is information was really as effective, which is also the argument of a lot of liberal folks. Now, speaking of Duterte, haven't you noticed Trump was a total disaster mm-hmm. in handling uh, the pandemic? And yet, look at these numbers. Uh, you, you go to Hungary, Orban's handling of the co- pandemic was disastrous. One of the highest death rates in Europe was in Hungary. In Turkey, one of the highest rates in the Middle East. And yet, and yet, Trump, yes, he lost in 2020, but he got... So many votes. I mean, how many? 80 million votes? Yes, He's yes. Still in contention. Uh, Urban actually won big in the latest elections, even when he was against the United Opposition. Ardoan doesn't seem to be in trouble. Modi, India, someone very similar to Duterte, actually won even bigger right now. And look at the numbers of India. Their economy contracted by 10% in 2020, just like the Philippines, 9.6%. Their death rates could be in millions, Howie, based on the numbers we're saying. Okay. Modi. But you see what happened? What happened here was this is the skill of the populist. They create a cult of personality. Even when they don't be they don't manage well, they do two things. First, they have what I call performative populism. What is performative populism? They have all of this, uh, you know, all of this kind of uh, perception management strategies to make it look as if, oh, they're strong. I mean, you've seen the third, right? When he gives the speeches at night, he says, oh, I don't know. So what is the image? Yes, maybe I'm not doing well, but my intention is there. I'm trying hard. Please have compassion and sympathy with me. So he looks like actually a victim leader. And that appeals to a lot of people. And the other thing is they're so good in saying, Bakit? Marami din namatay. Yung whataboutism. Bakit? You're complaining about Philippines. Dami namatay sa Italy. Dami namatay sa America. So they're very good in doing that. And let's be honest, Howie. Yes, I have done my assignment. I have broken down the indicators. San nag si Duterte where he could have done well. But let's be honest. Let's be honest, Howie. That's what I do because that's my job. But a lot of our median voters, they don't do it that way. They don't, they don't go and look at the Nikkei Asia Index or Bloomberg index and yes, look at but, the indicators and oh, say, but, they but, but Richard, what they do look at, but what they do look at are TikTok videos, YouTube uh, channels, and and you know that uh, you mentioned a lot of these autocrats around the world. You know, a big part of the playbook nga, is this information. And how big a factor is that uh, in this kind of Teflon protection of uh, Duterte versus, uh, I mean, you mentioned Mama Sapano, that was a major disaster, but you also mentioned the drug war where you know tens of thousands uh, 
uh, could have been killed. No, so uh, parang uh, let's talk about scale here, and uh, it's just ironic uh, for for some observers and maybe to yourself as well. Now, uh, when Aquino exited, uh, you know the right. Philippines had a pretty good reputation. The economy was in pretty good shape. Uh, and yet, uh, isabi mo nga, it kind of ruined liberalism in the Philippines. Whereas, uh, uh, despite the pandemic and uh, the management or mismanagement of the economy and uh, the lockdown under Duterte, parang uh, autocracy is alive and well, alive and well in the Philippines. How we're, we're presupposing that a lot of people here are actually thinking in a very systematic way. If you, if you do ethnographic studies, if you look at the research ethnographic studies, for instance, we have. Uh, friends like sociologists at the University of Chicago, Mark Garrido, who was, uh, invest- who was actually had ethnographic studies with a lot of middle-class Filipinos who are pro-Marcos and Duterte, right? And he said, their arguments are actually not very consistent. It's more like just emotional frustration. A lot of them actually were there during ETSA revolution. They were there in 1986. They, in fact, they know deep inside that Marcos' dictatorship was a disaster. The same way I'm sure they know deep inside Duterte has been a disaster on many fronts, but it's that's where the emotion comes in. I think there's just so much frustration with decades after decades of democratic promise and not, nothing coming out of that, that they are now suddenly willing to team up with whatever is the craziest. And the idea is that, okay, and this is where we get into interesting territory. The idea is that maybe, okay, maybe Duterte was not the most effective guy, but his intentions was good. But you know what? We're now going for the originals, which is the Marcoses. And... This is where actually Howie, and this is where I talk about our class, the ABC class. Let's be honest about this. If you look at the ABC class, um, a lot of them are suffering from what I call Singapore envy, right? A lot of them go to Singapore, go to Dubai, go to Hong Kong, go to a lot of these places and see, wow, nice skyscrapers, order, clean. Guess what? No democratic politics to speak of in, many, uh, in any real sense of the word. So their sense is what we need is a kind of our own version of Lee Kuan Yew. So many things are happening here, Howie. It's, it's, it's systemic frustration. It is disinformation feeding on that systemic frustration. It's even our ABC class having this Singapore envy. Look at how many times Lee Kuan Yew is quoted. Lee Kuan Yew is being used by all camps. Isco quotes Lee Kuan Yew. <laughs> Bombo Marcos says my tata would have been a Lee Kuan Yew. When you put all of these things together, Howie, I think it makes it very hard for median voters, except the 15 million who voted for Lenny, etc., mm-hmm. people in the media, to really go down and dig it in and say, but in fairness, someone, uh, you know, uh, Kino did well on the indicators by Bloomberg in 2015. Or it just doesn't work that way, Howie, with, with, with median voters. They, they're in a totally different state of mind. They don't okay. see things the way you and I see things, which is based on data analysis, comparative. Well, well not just not just that, Richard. Because na banggit mo yung emotions and sabi mo nga, there's a lot of frustration, etc. Right. But you you're also you were also a keen observer of the campaigns, and you cannot deny that na attend karen mga rally yung meeting the avance. Right. Uh, there was a there was a there, you must have noticed a contrast, no, in the emotions uh, right. of these of these various rallies, and uh, you know, I mean, Le- 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 Lenny's rallies. You could see that there was a lot more festiveness. There was, mm-hmm. in fact, some joy. In fact, ang ang uh, ang tema nga nila yung radical na pagmamahal. No, I mean, right. uh, whatever that really means. But a lot of people, I guess, took it to heart. So there was a lot of music and theater and murals right. and paintings. That's a positive emotion. It's not frustration. That uh, of course there was a lot of hope. No. Now the question is, may maraming nagsasabi na. Parang in previous elections or election campaigns, pag may ganyang klaseng groundswell 
of emotion, of size and scale, of rallies, of this kind of festiveness. No, uh, starting from uh, Cory Aquino and then uh, Joseph Estrada, even Duterte himself. No, may ganyang klasing uh, uh, emotional content yung mga mga rallies niya. No, it was reflected in the surveys, and eventually, it actually uh, spelled victory uh, in the polls. Now. Uh, itong sinasabi mong frustration and uh, you know uh, I guess um, rejection of Lenny. I mean, you didn't you didn't at least uh, from from where I sat. Uh, I didn't sense this as much as I sense the the newness of this election season, the campaigns. No, yung uh, you, you you know everyone saw this around the world. No, yung the the pink movement. You've you've actually written about this as well. You're talking about this pink movement having a future. So obviously, much of it is is emotional. Hindi naman yung ideological and mahirap nga malaman ano ba talagang ideology niyan. But certainly, you think it has a future. And uh, so please explain this. I mean, you saw this emotion as well. Let's okay. Let's be not in my frustration with democracy, etc. But on the other hand, we did see. A very visible, visceral, joyful demonstration of faith in mm. democracy on the part of uh, all these people who were attending these rallies. Right. Let, let's first of all let me throw some numbers. Honestly, I saw all of these questions coming because I knew I said this is going to be the pushback against my argument. So I love this discussion. I love it. Apparently, you're talking just as much as which is a good thing. I like this pushback. Let me put it this way. First of all, let, let's look at the numbers. Even in the best years of liberal reformism, which is President Aquino's years. 2011, according to World Bank, 40 richest families took home 76% of newly created growth. The grip of political dynasties on our legislature did not go down during Aquino years. If anything, it actually deepened. So these are actual numbers that can be deployed by the Marcoses and Dutertes to cast aspersions on the credibility of liberal reformism. The other very successful liberal reformist president, I would say, is Ramos, one of my favorite for some reason because he consolidated democracy. I think if Ramos didn't become the president in 1992, had Imelda and Danding joined forces, they would have taken back the Malacanian by then. So God bless Ramos for actually helping democracy go there. But look at how Ramos ended towards the end, all of those hostage issues, the privatization that went so many uh, so wrong right and left. I understand he had to privatize because he's a bankrupt ni Marcos and he had to pay debts, right? But still, if you look at Ramos, he didn't end on the strongest note. And then Malas pa my Asian financial crisis pa, diba? So that allowed for ERAP to come in. You see, we see this pattern. Eh? We have a liberal reformist, tries to clean up, doesn't end on a very good note. A populist comes in, boom, right? And then we see this again right now. Aquino comes in, doesn't end on the best note. And then Duterte comes in, boom, then we move into something very dangerous. Um, so that is something we have to keep in mind. For average Filipinos, they just are so cynical and about just the non-delivery of the system that they're just looking for someone to blame Howie. So the game plan here is who is better in finding someone to blame? Who is better in pointing at someone as being the enemy of the state? And let's be honest, the Lenny camp are not really in the business of trying to mobilize hatred against the camp or so, right? They're in the business of pointing out lack of accountability for the past injustices under the Marcos and not. But Howie, the thing is, Hindi ganon ang labas dun sa mga supporters, dun sa 31 million voters na pumunta kay uh, Marcos or even the few million that didn't go to Lenny but went to the other candidates. You know how they look at it? They say, 
Hindi, paninira lang ginagawa nila Lenny. This is all paninira. Look at Marcos. He never engaged in negative campaign. Of course, he could outsource this always, right? But that's the problem, Howie. The way this came off to a lot of median voters is actually the opposition were the toxic ones. They're the ones coming out trying to lecture us. They're the ones saying we're the smarter. They're the ones coming out. And let's be honest, Howie, we have had some very problematic people saying they're pink, but the things they have been saying really never helped the pink movement, right? Coming out and, and making these Bobotante statements, etc. I felt that, in fairness, I think Jillian Robredo called out some of these people. I think Robredo should have called out some of these people. They give a bad name. And who knows, maybe mga false flag operation in Ibajan, they want to give a bad name to the pink. So this is the context because we have to understand how we... Uh, and, and now, going to the question of... The meeting, the advance. You see, yes, I was there in Makati. I did an interview and I was there. Yes, it was festive. It was cool. It was fun, fresh. There was freshness in the air, etc. The speaker system was not as good, but never mind. But when I went to the meeting, the advance in Solaire, and apparently, tinaiming nila Marcos na after, uh, so I think Eric 13 natapos si Lenny, diba? Yung speech nila bombo was, I think, 10 to 11, then fireworks, etc. You know how it was a totally different side, guys. You know, you go there. People had tears in their eyes. You know, when all of this nostalgic music would come out, you know, know, the, the people, you could see they're just desperate for any radical change, whatever that means, right? And that emotion is so raw and can be so easily, right, channeled or even manipulated. And this is the feeling I have. There's so many Filipinos who are just so desperate for change, they will fall for anyone who says they're just so radically different. So that's why I said, the challenge for Lenny in this camp was to go much more aggressively progressive and all. And I feel that's why Riza on Tiveras did well. I think Riza on Tiveras did pretty well considering everything because for a lot of median voters, Riza on Tiveras, even though they may not agree with her liberalism mm -hmm. or her Akbayan progressive side, they saw the fire. They saw the fact that she's her own, that she's willing to be there for the people. She passed a lot of laws, etc. So I think the victory of Riza on Tiveras tells us that people just want something, a radical departure. And yes, maybe even radical departure from Duterte. They cannot say it openly because I'm doing Sarah. But yun lang sense ko eh. This election was really about who can provide the most radical departure from just a total regime that failed. Because Howie, yes, the original scene is the Marcoses. In 20 years, they destroyed our institutions. We got debt and all. But we have 30 years to put our act together. But for a combination of many reasons, it didn't work. We can write volumes on that. And... The way it ended up is because of the communication strategy of one side, they were much better in mobilizing hatred against the liberal camp than the other way around. But then again, to say it's just disinformation misses the point because there was a basis, there was a disaffection that made the disinformation effective. So in short, for if I'm going to use a technical term, disinformation is the, uh, it's the intermediary variable, right? While the causal variable is really systemic disaffection. So to say that disinformation alone is the cause of everything, I think it kind of misses the point. But it is not the factor. And that's why uh -oh. I disagree with a lot of our journalist friends. Yes, yes, yes. Well, of course, I agree with you. It's not the only factor. There are many, many other factors. But the, but the fact is, the illiberal administration of President Duterte did not exactly make a Singapore. Diba? I mean, how many people are actually lift out, lifted out of poverty? So, kung sabihin mo, the root of our, many of our problems is because of the liberal regimes since uh, people power. Parang, uh, you're also, are we also kind of giving the last six years a pass? 
I mean, six years is a long time. You could actually turn a lot of things around. I mean, what actually improved in the last six years? No, that would uh, you know uh, continue to give uh, liberal regimes a bad name and uh, set set the stage for another illiberal regime. Again, I, I love that point. Again, how you know me? I mean, I get trolled right and left precisely because of pointing out your gaps, right? Like mm-hmm. all of this kapalpakan we have seen throughout the years. At the same time, Howie, you see, this is what um, Umberto Eco, who had this fantastic piece, Your Fascism, talking about the light version of fascism. He said, one of the strengths of far right, political far right and all, is that they have a cult of action. So you talk to a lot of median voters who voted for Duterte, Marcos, and all. They have two things to say. First of all, they say, yes, Tata Digong was not the most effective here and there, but at least he tried to do something. At least he did something about the drugs. And then they'll talk about the bill, bill, bill. Let's be honest, under President Aquino, because they had to clean up the fiscal situation and all, the, bill, the, the infrastructure agenda was really pushed down. It started very late. So Duterte got a lot of credit for projects that started under Aquino, but actually finished. Mark Villar and all, I think, benefited from that. He did very well in the Senate race. So Duterte was very lucky, too, because he finished a lot of infrastructure projects. And then they have very good... Yes, this is where also performative populism comes in. They exaggerated all of these investments, supposedly right and left. And that was just enough for a lot of voters. But there is a second layer, Howie. That's why I love this question that you raised. The second layer is this, Howie. The second layer is, Tate Digong is a bit old now. So, you know, let's be realistic. He might not be at his best. He's not his peak years. But his daughter is still young. He can do very well. And Marcos Jr., he learned the mistake of his dad. So, he, so in short, the two kids... The two offsprings are the improved version of their fathers. Their fathers were tragic cases of heroism. They tried their best, but they came short. But here, the children can pick up where their parents left off. Obviously, we can raise all sorts of empirical questions with that. But that, for some reason, emotionally appeals a lot. And then when you ask about it, they say, Oh, bakit si Arroyo naging presidente, tatay niya president. Bakit si Aquino ba? Ano achievements niya before naging presidente siya? Let's be honest. God bless President Aquino. I think as a president, he did well. But before he became president, he was not the most stellar legislator, right? Uh, so a lot of people, and in the case of Robredo, they would say, well, Robredo, Jesse Robredo was great. So Lenny Robredo. So they'll give you that argument that there's nothing special about offsprings benefiting from the legacy of their father, supposedly good legacy, and then improving upon that. So this is how, because you know how we, that's the problem. That's why we have to get out of our echo chambers because our echo chambers are very empirical, are very interrogative. We look at the logic, the, but that's not how the median voter operates. The median voters has this general frustration, looking for someone to blame. So they're up for grabs for anyone who can come up with something. At the same time, they have this impression that we're a rudderless nation. Decisive transformation did not happen. So anyone who does something crazy, even if it's sabog, right? Yeah. <laughs> they will still credit that person, case in point, Duterte. So this is my problem. So just to end on this point, Howie, let's be honest. Both Cory Aquino and, uh, and, and President Aquino, God bless their soul. Not to take anything away from them. I have already written extensively on them. Let's be honest. Both administrations came short on really structural transformation whether it's to do something about the political dynasties, whether it's to break the oligopolistic practices, whether negotiating our debt during that era. Again, I'm not trying to blame them for everything. I'm just saying something was not done, and that's something that was not done. Other side made a mountain out of that. And that's why somehow the chickens are coming home to roost. 
All right, I'm not, I won't belabor that point. Point well taken, uh, Richard. But itong uh, balikan ko lang si President Duterte. No? Did he pave the way for a Marcos restoration? Uh, how big a factor was uh, was uh, the Marcos burial in the libingan ng mga bayani? But I get your point about frustration with dysfunctional democracy, etc. But you know, President Duterte actually you know recognized uh, Ferdinand Senior as a hero. How how big a deal was that? Duterte is a he's a He's a good, he's a smooth operator, right? He would say like President uh, Marcos was the best president ever except he became dictator. So he's kind of saying he's not going to be dictator, right? He plays those games. But to put it fundamentally, I mean, half, I'm just being a bit cheeky about it. I said, this is the Duterte legacy, the legacy, the return of Imelda Marcos to Malacanang. And then I put the shoes, right? I think that tweet captures essentially what happens here. I think 50 years from now, when historians are going to write about the Philippines, And who knows, maybe Marcuses are still in the mix. Marcus the fourth, Marcus the fifth, I don't know. They're a royalty, right? Uh, according to Tony Gonzaga, they're coming back to their home, right? I think Duterte could end up as a footnote. Some out-of-the-box, unhinged guy who was nothing but the curtain raiser for the Dutertes. I, for the Marcuses, sorry. So I think this is something Duterte is also worried. Like, okay. Wow, all these six years. Can I, I push back a little bit on that? Because um, you, you yourself mentioned earlier that Sarah Duterte was... Was rating even higher than Marcos Jr. and right. you were actually suggesting that kung tumakbo si Sara bilang pangulo, baka mananalo pa siya even if Marcos Jr. ran, di ba? Uh, if you think about it, Sara Duterte has less political baggage than than Marcos Jr. I mean, walas mga kaso, uh, right. etc. So, so if you're talking about political royalty in the Philippines, parang pakakulang yung Sinasabi mong mga Marcos lang yung political royalty. Baka, after all, Saro Duterte got more votes than Marcos Jr. despite the landslide victory right. of Marcos Jr. No? Right. So, I want to ask you, no? kasi this was a coalition or a tandem brokered by Gloria Arroyo. And, uh, among not, others. I think yeah, among others. It's not clear. Martin Romualdez was a big player. Let's yeah, okay. Uh, well, Gloria is getting a lot of the credit for it. But nevertheless, uh, first, I have a series of questions about this. And before we go on to how how you think Marcos Jr. will govern, which is also an important uh, question. You know? But tingin mo, uh, do you think Marcos Jr. would have won without a Sarah Duterte running mate? And what if Sarah Duterte ran for president? Right. So this is where it's going to get interesting. I know there was all of these conspiracy theories that, oh, Marcos is just a front guy. Once he wins, they'll disqualify him, etc. I said, mm-hmm. hmm. first of all, you're underestimating the Marcoses. They have been working on this since 1991 when they returned. And second, in the Philippines, it's a winner-takes-all situation. Sadly, we're not a constitutional democracy. Who is the mm-hmm. president? He becomes a king for at least the term that he's in power, Right. So, and we saw that, Howie, the moment he won, he showed who's the boss. Sara Duterte consistently made it clear she wanted the Department of National Defense. Arroyo, I think, made it very clear she wanted Speaker of the House over and over and again. That's why she came out of retirement. Do sex machina, her uh, memoir and all. Guess what? It took 48 hours after the results became more or less clear for Marcus to show who's the boss. So Sarah Duterte's spokesman comes and says, uh, presumptive vice president is interested in the Department of National Defense, which they have been saying at infinitum. Guess what? She got <laughs> popped down to DepEd. 
No offense to DepEd, but DepEd is not the part of national defense. The budget, the credentials, yes. the China connection, all of that. Okay. Yeah. R- Richard. And, and, and Aroy is not getting the Speaker of the House. So yes. here is my problem. Here is the, my issue. If I'm the third, I'm going to be worried now because over the next three to four years, Marcos could actually play his own game by building alternative alliances and essentially box out the Dutertes. He can make alternative alliances with Alvarez, with competitors in Mindanao. I have a question Maldeset, about this. Aro- uh, he, the, the sky is the limit for the Marcoses now. Yeah, okay. At the same time, no, sabi mo nga, parang, you know, Marcos Jr. showed who who's boss by basically, it, parang ang lumalabas, he kind of broke a uh, pre-campaign promise uh, in the negotiations with uh, Sara Duterte. Kasi yan ang parang lumalabas ngayon dun sa statement ni Sara Duterte no? nung nagpasalamat siya na, na ibibigay sa kanya yung education uh, portfolio. Yung sa second paragraph ng kanyang statement, sabi niya, before the campaign, we talked about the Department of National Defense. Right. No? So, parang, don't you think, uh, oh, sige, on the one hand, parang dinimote siya ni Bongbong, but on the other hand, di kaya sinundot din siya ni Sara Duterte. She didn't have to go back to that promise or that that uh, negotiating that bargaining chip no uh, in agreeing to to step you know to to be a running mate rather than running for president no parang you could see it that way eh, na okay on the one hand parang marcus junior showed who was boss by by basically in a way breaking a promise or you know kind of not following a, a part of the agreement but on the other hand sara duterte reminded everyone of that promise, which she didn't, she didn't have to. So, parang it seems it seems to some na this early hindi pa nakaupo, no? Parang nagkakaroon na ng konting fracture, no? Between it, although they still talk about unity and the way they, right. they want to they want to avoid intrigue, but the fact that she even mentioned na ang pinangako sa kanya ay Department of National Defense, right. and there was talk uh, months ago about this already, already shows intrigue in a way, because. You cannot avoid uh, thinking that way because she didn't have to mention that at all, but she did. Hindi lang yan, Howie. The Mayor Rodriga Roa Duterte Executive Committee, something like that, right? Yeah, the press con. I mean, it's so long. I I don't bother to memorize it. They they came out with a statement reminding that our you know Mayor Sara Duterte would still she's more befitting for the office of National Defense. So yes, yes. Game of Thrones has begun. I think both of us agree that the uh, the essentially the tensions are now out. It has already begun. I completely agree with you that Sarah still has a lot of bargaining chips here. But if I were to make a point, I would say up until this last week, sorry, I think Marcos was the one who was underestimated because we know that Sarah has this gravitas, at least in Mindanao politics. She has that kind of decisiveness. She has been a force through Hokbong and all of that solid South mobilization. Everyone, But everyone has been underestimating Bomo Marcos. That's the sense I got. You know, everyone's saying, oh, this guy, did he even graduate? He's just a flunky. He has no achievements. Duterte called him a weak leader, a spoiled brat. But, 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 I think, but Richard, Richard, I think has he actually... the reverse. Ha, yeah, but has he actually done anything or have you actually seen anything that would... A kind of uh, reverse that image. Because you yourself, you said in the meeting they si Sara Duterte. So uh, I mean, you know, everyone is noticing this, no? So if uh, you si Marcos Jr., parang titingin mo, oh my gosh, she's more popular than me, or she, she, the, the crowd is more energy, has more energy. Pag siya yung and then he hasn't been known for you know soaring political rhetoric, no? During the campaign, he didn't, he didn't actually interview, etc. And 
and si Sara si Sara pa yun mas mas nagpapa-interview. So anyway, I don't want to belabor this point kasi it, it remains to be seen kung ano talaga yung mangyayari sa coalition nila. No? Yes, but, but now, may I push back against that? I would even yeah. say that actually, if, I think the main reason why Sarah didn't run is not only because of the whole bongo thing and the father wanting mm-hmm. to push for his own uh, what they call tandemocracy, right? Like what Putin mm-hmm. did. Like put Medvedev there and then through Medvedev, I'll still be the president. I think it's not only that. I think Sarah also realized she may not be ready for the highest office because her portfolio in national politics is very thin. You can say whatever you want about Marcus Jr., but he was a senator of the republic who almost became the vice president. The Marcuses have been a staple of our national politics for such a long time, past half a century. You know, I think we're overestimating Sarah Duterte's sense of confidence and, and bargaining chip here. It is true that in there were an alliance of convenience or maybe more. But now, yes, in this alliance of inconvenience, I think the president has all the chips that the vice president may not have. If anything, isn't this what they did to Lenny? Lenny won vice presidency, but they tried to make a spare tire out of her. And that limited really options for Lenny to fight back, right, in many, many ways. Uh, so in, here, I think the same thing would happen to Sarah if Sarah doesn't play her cards well. If she fights back too fast, too early, Marcos still has the upper hand. Still, the seat of power is not in Davao. It's in Manila. There's still a lot of other big families who are bandwagoning towards Bombo Marcos, not necessarily Sarah Duterte. There are many people in Mindanao that maybe they'll be open to cut the deal with Marcos directly. You, you know what I'm saying? I'm not saying that's going to happen. You're absolutely right. Uh, Howie, it remains to be seen. But the sense I have overall is that Marcos Jr. is the one being underestimated here. And perhaps it's, it's Sara Duterte who is in a much trickier position right now once the office of vice presidency has been so diminished over the years, partly thanks to her own father. Okay, so so you think Marcos is uh, being underestimated. So how do you think he will govern? Did he give any clues right. uh, during the campaign? I mean, apart from political maneuvering and kind of outsmarting his opponents or his his running mate, etc., no, uh, or consolidating his power. I mean, beyond the power, no. I mean, ano bang programa nito? I mean, wh- how do you think uh, he'll handle you know uh, you know so the main the major issues facing the country? You know, foreign policy, China, uh, the pandemic. Did he give any clues during the campaign? On the question of what will happen to Marcos, as you may know, I wrote a piece already months earlier on the scenarios if either Marcos or Lenny wins. And each of them, I gave at least three scenarios. Now, let's go to the Marcos scenario. Um, If you look at Marcos, I think how he will behave is not only shaped by the past of the Marcoses, but also by a number of factors in the coming months and years. One is exactly what we're talking about, Howie, which is this... Call it intra-cartel, intra-commission, right? Uh, dynamics with Duterte, with Arroyo, with all other power players who are part of the unit team. How they navigate their fault lines and competition, I think, will be a big factor in how far Marcos could go. For instance, uh, Howie, let's say Marcos would want to push for constitutional change. My sense is Marcos would want a much more centralized parliamentary, while perhaps Duterte would want a much more federalized, decentralized system. That could be a point of tension. What compromise will they find? That will depend on internal politics. That's not, as you absolutely correct, nothing is given at this point in time. All I said is, you're right, Sarah is a big factor. I always said she is the factor, but don't also underestimate Marcus Jr. And I think the first week showed already that he also has some cards to play. And now he's the president-elect, I mean, in, in many ways, or presumptive president. He has a lot of room for maneuver. That's one factor, and I think it will be big. The second factor is the opposition. Let's go back to the opposition. As I've said it, the pink movement is a toddler, but a super Bebo toddler. 
I mean, my goodness, it was just launched in October. And within seven months, how we look at it, the pink movement is now, uh, it has left an impression on the hearts and minds of countless Filipinos. Those grand rallies that we saw, the civic activism, the Gen Z who put us millennials to shame, right? By going door to door, right and left. You're talking about a whole army of volunteers. Even when they saw surveys saying, go that kind of conviction and courage, if Howie, if that is sustained, that toddler super Bebo movement could become a force to reckon with. Maybe not next year. Maybe not two years from now, but who knows? Maybe it will be in position for midterms if we shift the parliamentary system for something else. So the sense I have, I think you're, you're on mute, Howie. The sense I have is much will also depend on the next move by Lenny. Will she make the necessary adjustments? Will she bring in a better strategy, a better narrative? Will she sustain the energy? I think if the opposition is strong, they could put pressure on Bombo Marcos uh, and even exploit the fault lines within the ruling regime. And the last factor, Howie, international players. I think uh, President Biden did the good job of, I think, becoming the first president to call Bongo Marcos right away, making it clear, we're not here to make enemies. Yes, we haven't had the best past. Yes, we understand you know, there are issues with good governance. Yes, you have courts cases in the U.S. and all. But at the end of the day, it's about the alliance. And just to tell you, Howie, a few years ago, actually back in 2014-13, Narendra Modi, the, the Duterte version of India, he actually had travel restrictions in U.S. because of pogroms in Gujarat when he was the governor of Gujarat and he was allegedly involved with that. So he was actually banned from entering U.S. But once he became prime minister, he enjoyed what you call sovereign immunity. So those were lifted. So the idea that Marcos will not be able to visit the U.S., I think that is potentially wishful thinking for the opposition because he could get the same treatment as Modi got. And in the case of Modi, we're talking about pogroms, not ill-gotten wealth. I mean, there are levels here, right? So I think how U.S. treats him, engages him, will be very, very crucial. And the thing that makes Marcos different from, from Duterte, I always say it, Marcos's are Tiffany and Co., right? They love society. They love the West. Yes, he didn't graduate from anything, but he attended Oxford. He attended Wharton, right? His son went to uh, LSE. His wife supposedly is, can practice in New York. They love the affirmation from the West. They would love to meet queens and kings if they're open to meet them, right? In ways that Duterte never was. You know how we mm. like Duterte never visited. So, so, so non-issue itong hindi siya makapunta sa America dahil may mga kaso. Because I understand that as a head of state, he's going to get a diplomatic visa which gives right. you immune, a certain level of immunity. Right. And then, why, you know, why, why would the U.S. Uh, give him a hard time considering they're much larger stakes uh, other than kung ano man yung uh, kasong ikinaharap niya sa korte sa Amerika? Yeah, um, as I said, this is not going to be a smooth operation, obviously. Uh, there will be some finessing around it. Surely, if Marcos goes to any Western capital, you can imagine what kind of reaction they'll get from a lot of progressive groups. I think there could be rallies, right? Uh, people who remember the human rights violations. I think the media in the West will not be nicest to them. So I think the Marcoses will start from very difficult, you know, uh, they're, they're not going to start from zero. They're going to start from negative 10. So the sense I also have with Marcos is that in the next six months or first hundred days in office, one, one thing he wants to do is to come up with a strong cabinet that is as inclusive and competent as possible. He will try to. Now, if the good guys will say yes, that's another question. Um, number two, he will be on a charm offensive. He will try to get interviews with top journalists around the world and show a different face. Now, this is Marcus 2.0. We learned our lesson. We want to move forward. I think Do you he think will... he'll reach out to the pink movement? Itong tinatawag mo pink movement. 
Uh, I think he will uh, pro forma, yes, to send the right signal, yes. Sabi mo nga, gusto niya maging, uh, you think he should be you more inclusive and you expect him to be to try to be inclusive. Inclusive means just not just your allies, di ba? Yan ang, uh, I guess that's what you're suggesting. Right, I mean, we heard names of Cesar Purisima, if not even Moro has been circled. Oh, right? was, was prominent in the Pinoy cabinet. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I have to verify the veracity of that, but I've heard Cesar Purisima's name coming up a lot of times in conversations I've had with people who are privy to discussions on the cabinet formation. So I think that means Mark. You see, Marcos doesn't want to have the same cabinet that Duterte has. You know, I mean, just look at the early years of Duterte, the kind of people in his cabinet. I mean, some of those people were really characters, right? I don't think what, that's what Marcos wants. Marcos wants to be like his dad in a sense that he wants to have an A-list cabinet. Whether he can assemble that is another question. I mean, we have seen some bloggers and impresarios openly saying they want some top cabinet positions, including DFA. But I know that there are other people being uh, considered, including a top ambassador we have right now. Uh, I think Bebro Maldes could be in the mix. I think uh, a career ambassador within a USEC, within DFA is being considered. So I look forward to these cabinet positions, DOF, DFA, DND. I heard Gibo could be considered after one year lapse, yung, yung restrictions. Maybe Lorenzana could be there as an interim defense secretary for a meantime. Let's see. So I think, but I know my, my understanding is Marco's game plan is to show a new face, a good face to the world and try to go on charm offensive. I won't be surprised he'll try to visit Brussels for the Asia-Europe summit later this year. So that would be very important. That will be their debut to come back on the global stage. And they know, Marcos are smart. They know they have a very negative reputation in the West, but they would love to get the affirmation and engagement. So in, in that sense, they're different from Duterte because Duterte was always alienated from the West, lifelong resentment, etc. Lifelong, not only after court mm. case, lifelong. He really genuinely loved Putin. I don't know now that Putin is being beaten right and left by Ukrainians. Uh, he really likes something about China. Maybe there's more to it. I don't have evidence. But that's not with the Marcoses. Marcoses didn't need Russia or China to well, win this election. Sinabi mo sa isang interview, Richard, that Marcos Jr. is going to be more, quote-unquote, subdued towards right. China. It, he's going to use less inflammatory language, uh, right. etc. Uh, or what do you mean he's going to be more subdued uh, towards... Sinabi mo na na, you know, uh, uh, Mar- the Marcoses uh, like America. You know, they, they, they go there a lot. Uh, nag-aral si Marcos Jr. doon. Uh, right. So they have a, a very different history from... Uh, right. A President Duterte who clearly pivoted towards China and would be cursing America. He would be cursed uh, yeah. President Obama, etc. No, so uh, you don't expect Marcos Jr. to to do that. That's what no, you mean I by being think... subdued. I, I, subdued means no slavish language. I love Xi Jinping. I idolize Putin. I don't think we're going to hear that. I mean, it's very unlikely. And I think Vic Rodriguez will do most of the talking. And we know what Rodriguez. His style of speaking, right? It's very, very calibrated. On US, I don't think he's going to go out and cost Biden and all. That matters. Because mm-hmm. how that matters. I mean, yes, yes, of course. Yeah, well, speaking of Vic Rodriguez and, and how he's going and how they're going to be communicating all this, I and ano maging situation ng mainstream media. I, I know that they during the campaign they relied a lot on these right. yung mga vloggers, yung mga influencers. Uh, hindi yung uh, 
uh, people from uh, legacy or mainstream or be- even people like yourself no people who are critical or independent minded right. or yung yung uh, ganun so how do you think they're going to be like I'm, do you think it's going to be different uh, once they're in power once they're once they're in malacanya or is, is it going to be like a continuation of the campaign style of kind of ignoring questions uh kind of uh you know finessing uh public statements uh, recording just releasing recorded statements rather than you know answering uh, questions off the cuff before election the priority of Vic Rodriguez and the communications team of Marcos was to protect the lead to avoid the what happened in 2016 whereby he was leading towards the end of the race but Lenny was able to come back i mean not come back surge strong and their understanding is that the debates really hurt him a lot especially the debate i think in UST uh, hosted by CNN Philippines i think that The understanding is that that really didn't help because Cayetano, Lenny, all of them went after him, right? Uh, I think that was one sense they have. So they wanted to protect their lead at all costs. That's why cordon sanitaire. But if you notice, the night of election, as soon as it became clear, I think this is 9 to 10 p.m., became clear that they're in for a big win. Vic Rodriguez was all over the place, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I was walking into studios, different studios. I was say, Vic Rodriguez there, he's very calm, he's very confident, he's very friendly, he's suddenly very charming. So <laughs> my sense is, now that they secured the trophy, they will be in a much more confident position dealing with the media. Their hope is the media, not self-censorship, but the media will be a little bit more finesse also in engaging them. Now, but of course, if this thing goes ugly, You know, and this is really my forecast for the Philippines. Uh, if the opposition doesn't get it together, if the media doesn't hold, okay, hold the fort, let me use my own version, we might go down the, uh, the trajectory of what political scientists call hybrid regime, whereby there will be elections, maybe parliamentary, maybe presidential, who knows. But the elections are not really that competitive. We know who's going to win it. It's kind of like in Malaysia, right? You always know the Omno will win with some exceptions 2018 and then the back again. Or in Hungary, right? You know one person and one party will keep on winning. And the second worry I have, Howie, and I think this is very important to us who are in the mainstream media, is that my fear is increasingly there could be a situation whereby big media will either do self-censorship from the highest level based on corporate interests or proxies, of the ruling regime will take over big media outlets or their frequencies. I don't think Philippines is immune to that. Some would even say we may be already moving in that direction, right? Uh, so that is the, so everything I have said doesn't take away from the fact that I am quite worried for the Philippine democracy down the road. I definitely believe this was a very consequential elections. I stand by that. And no matter what, We do or or Marcos signals. I think that risk is very very clear for the Philippines. We could end up as something like Hungary, Turkey, or Malaysia in the coming years. Not in terms of economic development. No, I'm talking about political system. And if you look at those countries, you don't want to be opposition in those countries. Well, on that sobering note, and uh, we'll follow up on that uh, in a, maybe in a few months, Richard, to see how everything is unfolding. But in the meantime, let me thank you, uh, Richard, for engaging with me on. All of these questions. Uh, Marami salamat, Richard Haydarian, political analyst, professor, and author. Mabuhay ka. Salamat, Howie. God bless you, Paul. Thank you, Podmates, for listening until the very end of this podcast. Alam niyo na, nakakatalino ang mahabang attention span. This episode was produced by the team of Yumor Yanga and Chan Salvador. 
and edited by JR Magdoto with the wonderful people of JMA News and Public Affairs Digital. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Till the next pod, mabuhay kayo at ingat lagi.